Okay, hello everyone and welcome to Actus Radio, the nation's only radio program dedicated to the clinical documentation improvement profession. Actus Radio is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bring you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and to Actus. Today, Wednesday, September 20th, marks our 78th show. I'd be remiss if I didn't start by wishing all of our listeners a very happy CDI week. I hope you're uh, celebrating with your staff, maybe your medical providers, um, and your broader hospital administration uh, at home uh, in, in your facilities. I'll be getting to some of the activities going on here in, in Actus a little bit later on in the show. But um, again, happy CDI week. I'm recently back from the Actus uh, Symposium Outpatient CDI, which was held uh, Monday and Tuesday of this week. And I was, as I was telling my two, uh, my guests and co-hosts today earlier um, in our pre-call that I had a flight delay, a lengthy delay last night. Um, we had to fly back to Chicago O'Hare, get another plane, board that, come back. So I got home about 4.15 a.m. and I'm working on probably two hours of sleep. So if I'm a little bit off on today's program, <laughs> you know why. But again, uh, my name is Brian Murphy. I'm the director of Actus, the Association of Clinical Documentation Improvement Specialist. And I'm your host for today's program, Clinical Validation, a look at Actus's new white paper. So I'm joined today by my co-host at left, uh, Karen Newhauser. Karen is Director of Education for Med Partners. She's an RN with 37 years experience, uh, specialization in critical care. Uh, she transitioned to a role in case management in 2001 and then CDI in 04. Um, and Having been a mentor and preceptor, she recently transitioned to the position of Director of CDI Education for Med Partners in 2014. Um, you can see her full bio there, but Karen, of course, is also a member of our Actus Advisory Board and is our Advisory Board Liaison to our new CDI Practice Guidelines Committee, which produced this paper we're going to be talking about today. And uh, I want to welcome her to the show. So welcome, Karen. Thank you, Brian. All right. And next, I'd like to introduce today's industry guest, a familiar face for um, members of Actus and listeners of Actus Radio. We have with us today Cheryl Erickson. Uh, Cheryl is the manager of clinical documentation services with DHG Healthcare to mitigate and avoid penalties under MSSP and value-based payment programs. DHG Healthcare's CDI methodology considers implications beyond the correct MSDRG assignment. So a lot of stuff we'll be talking about today, clinical clarity, complete diagnosis coding. Uh, Cheryl has, of course, an extensive background with us at Actus, having served as our CDI Education Director uh, and Associate Director of Education. She's a former Actus board member and currently serves as chair of our Actus CDI Practice Guidelines Committee, and I'm glad to have her back on the show. So welcome, Cheryl. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. All right. As I always do, I'm going to start with a poll question related to today's topic. I'll ask you to pick the option that applies to you, and then we will come back to the results in a few minutes. So the question reads, are non-clinically validated diagnoses a problem in your facility? I'll let you define what that means, but non-clinically validated, maybe there's no clinical support for a diagnosis. Is that a problem in your facility? And your options are yes, uh, major problem, somewhat 
maybe they crop up occasionally. Uh, maybe you don't think so, but maybe RAC or other auditors might think so. Uh, would you say that it's not a problem, or maybe you don't know or not applicable? As I say every show, we have listeners that aren't necessarily in a acute care hospital setting. So again, are non-clinically validated diagnoses a problem in your facility? Yes, major, uh, somewhat. No, but our auditors or RACs uh, think so. Not a problem or don't know, not applicable. All right, we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna close that out. And we will, of course, come back to those results uh, later in the show. So again, as I mentioned, our guest today is Cheryl Erickson. Cheryl, welcome back to the program. Thanks for being a part of uh, Actus Radio. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm going to go ahead and pull up our white paper, clinical validation and the role of the CDI professional. Just so folks know, because this might be a little small on your screen, I'll try to enlarge and so forth, but this is available um, on our website uh, right here under resource library and white papers. So I encourage you to go ahead and check out the full paper if you haven't already read it. It has been up since July, but this is our first opportunity to really uh, talk about it. We, we did cover this on our Actus quarterly conference call um, last month, but I wanted to bring it to our Actus radio audience as well. So maybe Cheryl, could you maybe provide an overview of the, um, the, new, the new practice guidelines committee sort of and how this paper was, was written and a little bit about you know, what sort of what needed meets in the industry? Sure. Um, I think a lot of people in Actus are aware of, of your guidance and the push to help get the membership more involved. And so the practice committee is another way for members to get involved and maybe they're going to be future board members by being on this committee. But we're looking at different things to help kind of create some standardization and fill in the gaps of things all things CDI, especially as CDI is um, differentiating itself from coding, we need more and more guidance, making sure that we're able to address those things that are unique to CDI, um, as opposed to both covering CDI and coding issues. Mm -hmm. Great, Cheryl, I, I was wondering, for our audience members that are new to the concept of clinical validation, um, could you provide a working definition for them? Yeah, I think, you know, Karen, that's a great question, and I'm going to give you one of those padded answers that everybody hates so much. Um, <laughs> it's one of those things that it's still evolving, and so it kind of depends on who you ask. Um, we hear that there's a lot of disparity between how commercial payers are addressing it and how Medicare is addressing it. Some of the commercial payers are very aggressive, and what they're doing is using maybe industry standards from the literature or um, common definitions that have been used to diagnose different conditions. Conditions. And if you have a patient and say, for example, acute kidney injury is documented, if it doesn't meet those specific criteria, they say, oops, well, the patient doesn't have it. The problem is, is if medicine was that simple, you know, why would physicians go to school so long? There's a lot more nuances than just looking at lab values and saying, oh, they meet it or they don't meet it. Because you really have to consider every patient in the context of that episode of care to determine whether or not they have a condition. 
when we're looking at Medicare and the Medicare reviewers, it's a little more difficult to define because typically Medicare is not that cut and dried. They often don't give you definitions of different conditions unless it's through other information. For example, a lot of people um, have become very frustrated and confused because the sepsis guidelines for some of the quality measures are different than how the coding supports, um, coding guidelines support sepsis. So there's that little bit of disconnect and people are saying, oh, well, CMS is saying you have to use this. It's not really that CMS is saying that in terms of coding. They're saying in terms of clinical treatment, what that best evidenced um, practices out there as related to this criteria is this specific type of treatment. So it, it's a little fuzzy when we get to CMS and knowing clearly how are they defining different conditions. Mm -hmm. Oh, thanks. Those are great examples, too. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Yeah. I'm showing a citation you included in the paper, Cheryl, from a, a CMS document. It was a Medicare quarterly provider compliance newsletter in 2011, which I think still gives probably the best working definition we have of, of clinical validation and how an auditor removed acute respiratory failure because um, they didn't feel like there was uh, uh, enough clinical evidence or support for that diagnosis in the record. Uh, so, you know, also that and does distinguish DRG versus clinical, which I know you you make a point of, of drawing, Cheryl, as well. Yeah, and even though this is from 2011, what a lot of people um, may forget is that the recovery auditors had a lot of downtime because there were some contract disputes, and so they're really just now starting to rev up again. So we've kind of had a, a, a void, if you will, of guidance, and I think a lot of people may have become a little comfortable, maybe even a little complacent in thinking, oh, well, we must be fine because we haven't been getting those denials. So the focus was on Medicare Part B for a while, um, and we're starting to see it ramp up again as the new New recovery auditor contractors um, start doing that and also to keep in mind the QIOs now are doing the medical necessity reviews so that's going to be a little different too to see what kind of flavor we get from that because sometimes the exclusion of a diagnosis can affect the medical necessity of an admission as well. Gotcha. You know you kind of touched on this a little bit Cheryl but why has this become such a large issue lately, clinical validation. You know, I mean, you, you talked, you just talked about RACs perhaps starting the workup again. Um, but you know, wh why would a diagnosis appear in a record without clinical support? Is it, is it you know, are CDIs perhaps to blame in some instances with overzealous <laughs> query practices or the EHR frankly allows cut and paste and, and diagnoses perhaps to be transposed um, without the support, I imagine there's a lot of things, but do you have any, any reason why this seems to be more of an issue these days? I think both the things you mentioned are definitely contributing factors. Um, CDIs have done a great job, and coding as well, has done a great job in educating physicians. And sometimes physicians just want to avoid those queries, so they're going to proactively write monitoring for acute blood loss anemia on any patient who has surgery. Um, and that's where it gets a little tricky because monitoring for a condition isn't necessarily the same as saying they have the condition, even though monitoring is something that can support a condition as being reportable under UHDDS um, criteria. So so it, it gets a little muddy there. The other thing too is we see that sometimes um, physicians are documenting things like maybe the critical care intensivist. Um, they're documenting things like acute respiratory failure, but then the surgeon who the attending physician is is like, no, 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 my patient doesn't have that. Um, I really think one of the biggest influencers of why we're having this um, push and 
closer look at different diagnoses being reported is because of that move towards value-based purchasing. And there tends to be a disconnect between the clinical scenario as it's described by the provider and how it can be represented in the ICD-10 code set. And so I think that's really bringing to the forefront the need to have that clinical expertise in combination with that DRG validation expertise so that you're really able to say, not only are, is it coded accurately, because a lot of times coders are coding the record accurately, it's the documentation that's the issue. So not only do we have to make sure that that documentation can be translated into a code, we have to make sure that that code is going to accurately represent what's going on with that patient and be aware of all the different implications associated with that particular diagnosis. So I think that's why we're, we're seeing in the industry a lot more push on it. It's a good thing, but it's also a bad thing. You know, the positive is it helps increase physician involvement. But the downside right. is, can you get physician's degree on the same, you know, condition? And what's acute respiratory failure? What's acute kidney injury? Even what's heart failure between a hospitalist and a cardiologist? So it, it has its advantages, but also it has its challenges. Right. There's a lot of good comments coming in. I'll just give you some flavor of them, you know, someone, uh, Judy Sturgeon writes, difference between the past medical history list and the physician cloning it for the current problem list causes consistent problems with clinical validation to coders using an EHR. So yeah, we were just mentioning that. Another one of our listeners um, says our main challenge is not having an organization-wide accepted clinical guidelines for certain diagnoses. Again, the consistency of definition. So hearing it from our from our listeners right now absolutely mm -hmm. absolutely you know Cheryl I'm sure you agree that most in our profession have had interactions with those uh, resistors that I call them and <laughs> what would you personally recommend for an ex escalation process for for those physicians who, who document diagnoses consistently without any supporting validation in the record well, and I think this goes back to what Brian was already discussing and some of the listeners were discussing, discussing. With that copy and paste, um, it's very easy for physicians to have macros, and every time they do a surgical procedure, it all reads the same, or every time they evaluate a, a typical type of patient, they just click on that macro and the information populates, and they may not go back and modify it to fit that episode of care in that particular patient, so we might get some misinformation in there, and they're trying to be, you know, efficient in doing that, but Medicare is very um, precise in the fact that you have to give the right treatment to the right patient at the right time, and all those records should be individualized. So I think when we're looking at escalation, a lot of organizations are employing physician advisors um, to kind of have that peer-to-peer -peer conversation. Even if you don't have a physician advisor, there's likely to be physician champions within your organizations, those providers that are well-respected and they support CDI efforts. And maybe they can be the ones to kind of initiate that peer-to-peer -peer conversation. The, the biggest risk with these conversations is you don't want the staff level CDI to jeopardize their relationship with the physician. Because depending on how you write a query, and there's an art to writing clinical validation queries, it can seem like you're second guessing the physician and who are we as coders or um, people with nursing backgrounds as CDI specialists to question the diagnoses written by the physician. And I think that's where, you know, we have to make sure that we're avoiding that, that judgment 
um, in saying what's going on. So oftentimes having a physician involved is helpful. The other thing is too, is because of that connection that we're seeing to quality, you might be able to get physician leadership involved. So maybe your CME could have people, um, if you don't have a dedicated physician advisor who can serve as a, um, as a resource for the CDI team, because they already have peer-to-peer -peer things set up in place to evaluate the work of other physicians. Right. Now that's a great point you brought up about not having an identifiable person in that role, that title, a physician advisor. And I know that's a struggle with some facilities, but a good thing is, and sometimes even with a physician advisor that's titled, they may be pulled in so many different directions, they may not have enough time or energy to contribute. So identifying that champion, that person who, who is, has been supportive of CDI and elevate them to being able to help out that CDI department is, is, is very much a key. So thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, and you know, Karen, the other thing I want to point out too is um, the CDI manager themselves are often successful in having those types of conversations too, because I often found being a nurse made me a little more neutral in having a conversation with a variety of physicians. For example, at one time, our physician advisor was um, a spinal surgeon. And so when he had conversations with a cardiologist, that didn't always go so well. So sometimes having that neutral background of being a nurse can be helpful as well, um, as long as you, you know, you're delicate and have those conversations. And again, it's making sure that you're not compromising the staff level, um, the staff level CDI who's out there on the floor. Good point, thanks. Yeah, you know, Cheryl, there's so much in this paper. I've been sort of, giving our audience a little bit of a screenshot here as you've been talking and um, you know, you've got great information on when to issue a query um, for clinical validity, uh, recommendations on doing it, you know, uh, pre-bill rather than post-bill. So it can be made prior to claim submission. Um, some interesting tidbits here, just reminders about um, contrary to many organizational practices, diagnoses do not need to be documented the discharge somebody to be reportable um, can be obtained from any part of the health record that's I know that's um, a misconception um, but this there's, there's so much in here as query examples is there anything that you and we, and we do touch on um, escalation at the end but is there anything you think one or two things you think our audience should take away from this that you you're perhaps most proud of the work that you guys did or something that you found that you think will especially helpful for our readers and listeners? Well, the committee did a fantastic job, and um, Mark LeBlanc was also on the committee um, previously, and he yeah. helped spearhead this, this paper as well, so I want to make sure he gets his kudos um, because he was the chair prior to me, so he definitely was integral to this process. But um, the I, th I think really the most important thing is read the paper. Unfortunately, there was a clinical um, validation practice brief that came out from AHEMA, but I believe that the access is limited to membership. And so this is a way for CDI professionals who may not also have that um, membership with AHEMA to make sure that they're aware of what's going on in the industry right now in regards to clinical validation, because a lot of people were surprised when the official coding guidelines came out last year and we had that guideline number 19 that said, you know, if the physician writes it, basically yep. you code it. Well, that's not exactly, you know, what the criteria said. And I did want to, you know, bring to people's attention that there is a coding clinic from fourth quarter 2016. It's page 147. And Brian, I can forward this to you afterwards if people ask for it. And it talks a little bit about, um, you know, 
clinical validation versus DRG validation, and it's not a coding error if the coder codes that condition, but that that clinical validation is something a little different. And the reason why I like this um, coding clinic in particular is it talks about sepsis, because I know we've had so many discussions about do you use SOFA criteria, or is it, you know, SIRS plus infectious source? You know, there's so much confusion there about things. So I think some of the big takeaways is making sure that you understand and educate your physicians and your CDI staff of what is clinical validation query. You're trying to rule out a diagnosis where physicians are so used to us asking them to add a diagnosis. And so that creates a lot of confusion both for the CDI staff as well as for the physician because it's not always clear to them what we're asking them to do and that we want them to say this was ruled out or it, it doesn't apply or I need a, to add additional information. Right. Yeah, we do have that uh, coding clinic cited here. This is a list of references, pretty uh, um, excellent list for further reading and many of these are cited in the paper, but I uh, would recommend absolutely checking out the full paper. This is only a really a, a toe in the water of what we discussed today, but I got to, again, um, really Give kudos to the committee. You mentioned Marco Blanc, our former uh, committee chair. We have a great group of people. If you go to um, actus.org and membership and boards and committees, you'll find a list of all the committee members. And Cheryl's here as the representative and our current chair, and Karen, of course, is our board liaison, but it's a, it, it is a good group. Um, Alan Frady, one of our instructors on that committee as well, that put this together. So nice job. I think it is a, a, a great reference for our members. Um, all right, so at this point, we, we are out of time for our interview portion, but I'm gonna go back to our poll question, which we asked. I'll go ahead and I will pull that up again. We asked you all, our listeners, are non-clinically validated diagnoses a problem in your facility? And 20% say yes, they're a major problem. Um, another 64%, two thirds about say somewhat, and they crop up occasionally, so 84%. It's either a major or somewhat of a problem. Only 4% say not a problem. 3% uh, maybe the racks have made it a problem. And then 9% don't know or not applicable. So those are the results. Maybe to start with you, Cheryl, what, what are your thoughts on the poll and the results? Well, I think that somewhat they crop up occasionally is really in line with the paper because one of the things that we do discuss is there are certain diagnoses that you know anytime they're in the record, you better validate them. And so you've got the acute respiratory failure, you have the encephalopathy, you have sepsis, you have a severe protein calorie malnutrition. So we know some of, some of those high-risk diagnoses for denial. So maybe those are the ones that, you know, when they crop up, you want to make sure that you've got everything there to support those particular diagnoses. And then I think, too, because this is relatively new, the concept was introduced in the 2013 uh, Queer Practice Brief between Actus and AHIMA, and then it, that was updated in 2016 just to add the ICD-10 references. But that was really the first time that that concept of if a diagnosis is written without clinical support, that it needed to be addressed. And so we're still learning about this. It's still evolving. We're still kind of getting our feet wet. And that's why this paper is a great resource of pulling together all the resources we have right now to help kind of start framing and defining this, situ this um, situation. Absolutely. Any comments, Karen, on the poll, poll results? Yes, I was, I was kind of fearful that the no, but the rack and other auditors seem to think so. Although I wouldn't be surprised if Remember, they're a little, you know, it takes time for those denials to roll in. 
this is such a new phenomenon out there that that may rise in the future. But the good thing is, is that we now have the support for those in the sense of this great white paper that people can refer back to to help with that. But I'm very happy that it that that, that poll lay where it did. That it was just a uh, somewhat of a problem. That that was very. Uh, I was very happy to see that. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. And um, I'm going to go ahead and um, switch over to our in the news segment. Pull that up for you all. You guys still hear me okay, by the way? Yes, yes. I can. All right, cool. Little, little, little uh, audio blip there. All right, so in the news is a regular segment featuring the latest news and industry updates relevant to the CDI profession and to Actus. Uh, today, I'd like to discuss a recent editorial here on healthleadersmedia.com entitled, Shrinkage of Mandatory Bundle Program, a Blow to Value. Um, you can see the article here, and this is the, um, of course, the, the, the link to it. I'll provide those in the show notes, as I always do. Uh, but essentially, you know, the article reads, hospitals and health systems that made preparations to participate in CMS's bundled payment programs are left in the lurch. But those who fail to prepare will be rewarded. So uh, this is, I will say, an editorial, but it does touch on something that happened um, that were uh, CMS is scaling back some of the mandatory bundled payment programs. Um, you know, we, we've had presentations on this, and it seemed like this was going to be a larger part of the healthcare reimbursement landscape. Um, but now um, CMS is proposing, you know, there is a proposal out there, but it looks like it's going to happen uh, to cancel its mandatory cardiac and expanded joint replacement bundles. Um, the issue, of course, is that many hospitals and health systems have been preparing for this for months. You know, those were formally mandatory. I'm sure as the editorial notes, some will be happy about this change um, because they recognize that this could undermine some profitable service lines. They might be glad to jettison those expenses, uh, but other hospitals that have expended you know, considerable time, effort, and energy to get these in line, and we know that some hospitals really have done a nice job preparing for what they believe to be mandatory bundles. Um, those guys are gonna be essentially out a lot of investment upfront that they've put into this. So, you know, it, hey, this, this, this happens with political change and, and sort of the scaling back from the new administration about um, what they perceive perhaps as red tape or too many administrative hurdles to get over. I know not everyone was a fan of, of the bundled pro programs. Um, go to page two of the article here. I encourage you to check it out. This does link to some, um, some additional articles about bundled payments. Um, but maybe I'll just ask, maybe starting with Cheryl, what, what you think of this? I know, Cheryl, you, you have been uh, presented on bundled payments with us before and had kind of seen this as something you thought healthcare might be evolving into. And it's still, you know, there, there are still going to be some um, abilities to participate on a non-mandatory basis, on a volunteer basis. But it does seem to be a little bit of a scale back here. Um, any thoughts on this article and the apparent suspension of some of these bundled payment programs? Yeah, I think what you just said, Brian, is key, is that there's still the voluntary um, bundled payment program that's going on, the PP, uh, BTCI initiative, 
and a lot of organizations are already moving to um, ACOs, accountable care organizations, where they're collaborating with other um, post-discharge organizations like your SNFs and your home health, and then they're also partnering with physician groups because they're just finding it's more efficient when they can all align and pull themselves in the same direction instead of working against each other. And I think a lot of the commercial payers have really supported this approach as well. So I, I don't think, even though it's not going to be as prominent as it was, I think a lot of the elements are going to remain within the industry, especially because many of the measures were based on um, different types of metrics that are part of the hospital inpatient uh, quality reporting program. And so I wouldn't be surprised if maybe some of these find their way into hospital value-based purchasing or readmission reductions, things like that in the future, because the measures are already there. Um, they just might get repackaged in the future. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Cheryl. Any comments, Cameron, on this? Yes. Um, I hope that people will listen to the whole comment because I'm going to start out by saying I actually support a, a pause um, on one and or a pullback, so to speak, on these because you know the, the rapidity of the these mandatory programs you know, really made their success unlikely. You know, there are numerous applications in life um, where success is measured by pilots or slow methods of application. And for example, if you have an allergic reaction to a food, you know, they, they start by introducing foods back one at a time. So it's, it's done slowly and testing each one separately. So in that sense, while I'm glad CMS is only moving forward with a scaled back model for CJR in order to give it that pilot, you know, to make sure that everything's going to be smooth before they move forward with other bundles, I'm really saddened by the timing of their decision because it, it has put a lot of um, facilities and organizations in a financial you know, mess because they have spent so much money preparing for this mm -hmm. mandatory program. But then again, after what happened with the launch of ICD-10, I'm I'm not surprised. I know it does feel similar to that, and you you, you know you, what what you hate to have happen is hospitals to start maybe getting a jaundiced eye about future programs and going, well, they'll probably scale that back or they'll probably delay it like they did with I-10 or scale it back like bundle payments. And you hope that doesn't happen um, when there are future initiatives that occur. Um, but regardless, interesting story worth checking out on healthleaders.com. Um, at this point, we're going to just do a quick ACTUS update. I know we're at the top of the hour here. Um, again, I mentioned at the outset of the show, um, we have CDI week going on right now. If you haven't already taken a look at our industry overview survey, this is a great annual resource we provide. We had over 480 respondents, I believe, um, take our industry overview survey, very meaty 35 question survey covering um, all aspects of the profession, touching on various hot topics uh, worth checking out. We had some great analysis by our ACTUS advisory board member, uh, Angie Curry on that. Of course, you get a daily Q&A that you should be receiving in your inbox. Um, our CDI week committee has been answering some questions and providing that as a resource. And we've got, um, I'll just pull up our main CDI week page. Uh, 
these are all available right here on the page. This, this Friday, we're going to be having a free webinar taught by a couple of our instructors that we hope you take advantage of that we'll be offering uh, CEUs and hopefully provide some needed training for, for all you for uh, first part of CDI week. But you got posters and other resources for download, so we'll go ahead and check that out. Last thing I did want to mention was that um, we you probably have all seen we extended the um, conference speaking application period uh, to the end of day of Monday, the 25th. And originally we had closed it on September 11th, but we extended it two weeks due to all of the, the crazy weather we've been having and some requests for ex uh, deadline extension. We're happy to comply. So if you go to our act, if you go to our main conference page here. Um, you will see a link right here to the um, presenter upload form. So this allows you to submit your application to speak. If you haven't already done so or you're considering doing so, um, I would recommend it. You know, we, we do, speakers do get to attend the conference. We, um, we waive their admission fee for the, you know, main presenter as well as co-presenters on that session. It's a great way to get exposed um, for new ideas and share your knowledge with our members. Um, so if you've got an idea and you want to submit it, uh, please do so. We do have a, a nice list of potential ideas. This is not meant to be all-inclusive or exhaustive. We do encourage original ideas, but if you do need ideas for topics, our conference committee has identified many of them uh, right here. Okay, so that will about do it for today's edition of uh, Actus Radio. We'll be back again. You know, I just want to remind folks, we are usually in every other week's show, but because of some special programs we've had, CDI Week, um, and what's coming up next is our 10-year anniversary of Actus. We're going to be doing a special show next Wednesday, September 27th, taking a look back at, uh, at our first 10 years as an organization with a couple of original board members coming on to uh to serve as guests. So I hope you, you dial in. After that, we'll be resuming our regular bi-weekly cadence. So uh, keep an eye out for that. And as always, if you have any thoughts, suggestions about the show, the format, future guests, ideas for topics, send me an email at bmurphy at actus.org. Again, thanks to Cheryl and Karen. Uh, we'll see you again next week. Take care, everyone. Happy CDI week.